Hello, friends. Welcome. It's Cindy Silva on the Metaphysical Wisdom Podcast, and I'm here with my guest, Robert Bosnack. Welcome, Robert. Thank you for having me again. Yeah, welcome back. Um, this is our second chance to be together and mm-hmm. talk about some of our favorite topics, one of them yes. being alchemy. Mm-hmm. Robert is the author of a series of books on alchemy called Red Sulfur, and mm-hmm. you can find out more about that at his website. Let's have you talk a little bit about that as we open up the conversation. And um, yeah, that's that's really a, an important topic right now, this mm-hmm. idea of alchemy and how we can change our reality through our perspective and uh, go yes. way back to the roots of this ancient lineage that you carry. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so um, this book is based on um, historical some historical facts and on historical personages. What happened was that one of the last reports of an actual transmutation from lead into gold is reported by Spinoza, the great philosopher, in 1666, that there was actually a transmutation that had taken place. And um, the people who did the assay and some of them who were there was the midmaster of the Netherlands verified that there was a transmutation that was happening that could not be explained by current scientific terms. And it might have to do something with what is called red sulfur. Red sulfur is the philosopher's stone. And so um, I took that as my lead and I took the personages that were given in this um, in this story um, uh, a life because I thought you could only explore this by way of fiction. And uh, they came to life and I uh, shifted reality into their world and I started to move around in their world and I listened to their conversations and saw what they did and it was um, an alchemist, uh, a male alchemist and two female alchemists who got into a very close relationship and had children together. And uh, it tells the story of the making of red sulfur, the making of the Philosopher's Stone. It is very similar in a way to Harry Potter, except for the fact that it's happening in a period, the 17th century, that's a real period. That is when Um, alchemy and science struggled together and science started in 1600 because scientists were followers of Galileo. And um, so the great um, scientists at the time, like Isaac Newton and Robert Boyle, were alchemists. And so I tell the story of what happened to all of them in the 17th century when the big wars were going on and the wars were about can science exist? Because the church was very much against science, was very much against anything that didn't put the human being in the center. And Galileo, of course, said that the sun was in the center and that the church didn't want to hear. And so it was a battle for science. And that's a very important thing today because we're living surrounded by science. And there is, again, a battle for science going on right now. Mm Mm-hmm. Say more about the battle for science right now. I wonder. Um, I, no, I I think there's a lot of movement against science going on, mm-hmm. um, because there's an anti-elite movement going on all over the world, mm-hmm. and um, so the scientific elite that comes up with um, most of the knowledge that we have that is generally accepted is being cast out and everybody is supposed to have the same value of opinion, which is of course nonsense. Um, 
I have worked with 50,000 dreams. So my um, work with dreams has a little bit more hands and feet than, for instance, somebody who just does it um, for once. And so uh, scientists have have a whole lot of rules that they have to follow to come to a conclusion and people don't want to do it anymore and so we are rife with conspiracy theories that go right against science so i think we're in a very dangerous situation where science becomes just one opinion among many and it's not one opinion among many because what we're doing with a whole group of people that are the smartest people all uh, on the planet we are working together to verify and disprove each other's position until they're so solid that they can't be disproven anymore and then they become scientific fact and as we don't do that and if we if we believe everybody to have the same level of opinion then we're in deep trouble. And I think that that's where we are now. And um, it's something that is very upsetting to me because I believe that the world is moving into um, a realm of delusion that is very dangerous, that is creating wars and that is creating political situations that are very difficult. Mm. Mm. That's an interesting perspective. I haven't heard it from that perspective. I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. I wonder about um, how does that tie into the concept of originality? I took a course with you recently on Young Platform, and there is a distinction between originality and creativity. And mm -hmm. I feel like there's something here in intersection. Well, here. yeah, um, originality is going back to origins, and. Um, the notion of origins and beginnings is um, is very important, and we take the note, we take the idea that we are original, but that is actually not the case. It is not that we are original, but that we have access to origins, so that we can um, we can go into um, into the imagination and find the origins of our thinking. And that's what this course, um, Originality, which you can still take on the Jung platform, um, is all about. And um, the notion that imagination is central. This is a, a notion that died somewhere in the um, 12th century when we began to think that it was, the world existed of mind and matter. And before that, there was a world that existed in three stages, in three realities mind and matter but then also or a mind or spirit and matter but there was also a world of the reality of imagination and imagination is a world of images that you can access that you can enter into and that world will generate um, new thought and will generate original thought and so the course is about how to enter into this reality of imagination and find the find a world that is fresh that has the new spark and it's also a world of alchemy of course yeah yeah so what i'm hearing you say is that um we are instruments through which origin can have an expression yes right? and uh, the yes. moment of um inspiration where an mm -hmm. original idea comes it's not our idea it's, mm -hmm. it's origins mm -hmm. and contact with origins and we make ourselves available or not 
to that idea to that yes mm -hmm. that was the old notion of genius which is my next book that i'm writing about um which is also from a course that i did at the Jung platform how you can access genius because we got in the 18th century in the enlightenment we got into the notion that we are genius einstein is a genius mm -hmm. that was um, a secondary meaning that came in in the 17th century but in the 18th century but actually what it was before is creative spirit and everybody in roman times everybody had their genius everybody had access to this creative spirit which was your protective spirit and we can get access to that creative spirit again and can get access to genius because at this moment um there are some people that call themselves genius or that are called genius and they seem to have special access to it but they have access to it sometimes like Einstein had access to it for a period of time and then he lost it. And so you can have access to genius and everybody can have access to genius. I said already in my book, Little Course in Dreams in the early eighties um, that every dream is an act of genius because it creates an entire world. And that is um, what I'm talking about also in the originality course that um, there is something about imagination that I call cosmogonic. I don't call it cosmogonic. It is cosmogonic. Cosmogonic means the creation of worlds. You know that with every dream, a whole world is being created that we find ourselves in. So the origin of imagination is cosmogonic. We create world after world after world. And that becomes, of course, increasingly important as we are creating a new world by way of technology. Mm. Yeah, and there was a really significant element of play, like it was all play. It is mm -hmm. all play. Yes. Well, there are two worlds. There's the world of play and there's the world of survival. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that people in Ukraine at the moment are in the world of play. Mm -hmm. They're in a world of survival. And um, and their imagination is very powerful because they are defending their land from an oppressor. But um, they are living in a world of survival. If you if so, there are two aspects. You can live in. You can access the survival world, which uh, I had to pay my taxes today. So that's the survival world, and and then there is the world of play, where you bring through the play, through rules of the game, through um, through the place of uh, the place of play. Um, a whole world into being and that is cosmogonic and that is the world of play and it is very very important and it's just as important as the world of survival yes i feel like in the world of survival also like there's a fine line between the world of survival and the world of play even though we wouldn't call it play and it wouldn't feel like play sometimes like if we have a um a diagnosis that's that's deathly, you know, like the yep. end of our life, we might be more willing to surrender to originality, the, mm -hmm. the an original thought to right. crack us open and out of our old story. Right. So I feel like there's that sort of fine line where. Yeah, because we usually have one single story about um survival and you read uh you read it everywhere this person died after a valiant battle against cancer um that is one storyline we're completely in that storyline 
it we we can be in in it in a more playful way of seeing what who is this cancer what is the presence of this what kind of we um what we did in the santa barbara healing sanctuary is we give our capacity to dream over to the illness and we see what the illness is beginning to dream so playful aspects that we can um can uh, employ for um serious illness and then we get a different attitude we get a different state because um this battle thing people think that if they don't battle if they don't gear up for battle against illness that therefore they're going to die but i don't think that it helps any um yes you have to go to the resilience of your spirit but the resilience of your spirit might be much greater if you get into a more playful story mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and you shared in the the course of uh, an experience you had with originality that was very personal and mm -hmm. it was I feel like because I was in the container of that class and it was uh, July 16th, I had an experience that otherwise I would have probably thought was create, I would have chalked up to creativity. I now think of it more as originality in that. What, what was that experience? Well, we were going to the airport in LA. We live in Avila Beach, so it was a three hour drive and we were getting, you know, uh, behind in our travels and so we had an hour to catch our flight and we still hadn't parked our car we had a bag to check we pulled up to the Marriott um, to park it was the auto thing and our um, our co QR code wasn't working there was no attendant it was self-serve and so the, there was a lot of stress mm -hmm. so the pressure of that stress I just had this thought that I could call on the uh, archetype of the the chariot in the tarot, and I just had that. I didn't like it. Just came to me, and I said, "Yes, I will accept that help." And we ended up just forgoing the parking that we paid for and went around the corner to a new place to park, and um, got in and got a spot right away. The shuttle came. We got on, got to the airport, um, went to check the bag, nobody in line, got right through, went up the escalator, went to security, nobody in line in security. It was just unbelievable. We were just mm. looking at each other, shaking our heads like yeah. things going on. And so we end up at the gate 20 minutes before the flight, which just seemed like we'd, we had just been... Impossible. Yeah. And backing up to when we parked um we were you know in a state of stress and um, tension so we we made sure that we put the ticket for our parking in a place where we'd both remember because 10 days later when we come back we want that ticket and so my husband opened the center console of the car and um I go wow I didn't even know that that existed there was like this little skinny kind of opening on top of the deeper pocket in the console and there was this perfectly brand new black velvet and I said that's the perfect place for that ticket I said I didn't even know that compartment existed so off we went and you know all of that was um unbelievable but then you 
you think, well, you know, it was the middle of the day. Maybe that's when there's nobody at the security and you just kind of rationalize. But when we came back 10 days later and got to our car, we could not find that ticket. And that compartment does not exist. And that ticket was gone. And we ended up paying like $35 a day for parking because we didn't have our original ticket. We had to go to the office and get one. And so I felt like that was something, whatever we call it, the universe consciousness was confirming that in fact, we were in a different, like the vehicle had been transformed by yeah. the, this right. archetypal. Right. right. And that, and that is a playful thought right yeah. it it may not be true in the world of survival the vehicle may not have changed at all but yeah. in your world of thought that playfulness made it possible for you to accept what came in and then go with it and then afterwards find that it is in a whole different world it played by completely different rules that i think is really interesting and important that you can allow the playfulness to happen but it costs you a lot of money in the survival oh. That's what I think, you know, because in the course I wrote in the chat um, that this whole process reminds me of that, um, the neuroscience of flow, the four stages, and I mm -hmm. mentioned struggle, transition, flow, and then recovery. And I think that I have to say that it feels like there's a cost to that, like when we, I called on the support of this other uh, dimension where the laws are different and we are able to basically be transported um above and beyond the density of the physical world and all those constraints because when we got to minneapolis and rented our car there was a mix up there and we ended up paying almost twice as much for the car rental mm. and then um coming back we paid the extra for the parking so it's almost like there was a recovery you know of um mm. you can you can use the uh influences of other realms and yet kind of getting back into this the density of this world there was a cost for it that's mm -hmm. my story and my playful um, yeah. yeah relationship to that right and um the 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 most important part of what you're saying is that this made made it all into a meaningful event it was an event that was not just something that was happening to you, but you felt it was full of meaning and um, that it costs a lot extra is unfortunate. But you were in an event that you are telling now and that you probably will keep on talking about because it's so meaningful. So one of the things that happens when you get into the world of play is that suddenly things that were just random gain a notion a sense of meaning and um one of the things that jung always talks about is that people die of meaningless lives mm -hmm. when your life has no meaning then the chances that you get in trouble are much bigger than if you feel that your life has a meaning mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. and playfulness provides a lot of meaning yeah and I can tell you, um, I'm still looking for that compartment in my car. Mm -hmm. <laughs> still, and right. my husband too, we're both, and he's not into any of this, woo, yeah. you know, and yeah. to have, have it been witnessed by someone too, I feel. That is always important. Yeah. Yeah. It felt important. 
yeah so, and and so to realize that at that moment you were in uh, a world that played by different rules that's it uh, that's that's yeah. the main point and the thing yeah. also is that i was in the container of your class at that time it happened during the class so i feel like because i was under the influence of the um sharing and the story that you told and the um the meaning that was brought in through that course and my perception was expanded that my consciousness wanted to play with that at that time mm -hmm. in that fertility you know what i'm yeah, saying yeah 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 and um uh, i i think that uh, one of the things that we have to deal with is that we when we get into this more playful mode our rational selves will say well this is all nonsense right and then you get these things that you can no longer explain like this extra compartment that your husband saw too that is something that you can no longer explain and that's the the great thing about play is that you get into a pretzel your mind gets into a knot and your mind cannot follow it anymore and that's when the most interesting things begin to happen yeah and that's when science has no explanation right science has no explanation for it the only thing that we can say is this is what you experienced so um it is the science of experience which is phenomenology the science of experience can access it but the science of physics cannot right right and there's another uh, commonality here in that um, we were flying to the Midwest to see our daughter and grandkids who we haven't seen in eight months. So there was that emotional component. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. And like you shared in your experience, it was a relationship to your daughter that you had your experience of originality. Yes. yes. So it feels like that that first uh phase of of the flow which was struggle there was a struggle and then there was a transition mm -hmm. from one reality to another then there was a flow state and then there was the recovery and as you mentioned in the course that um although that seems linear it was happening all at once mm -hmm. all of those stages yeah. happening what I think is very important is that it had also to do with the passion for your daughter and your grandchildren. Yes. And um, I think that kind of passion is what brings the play about because it matters deeply that you got there in time. It mattered deeply that you got to your daughter. It mattered deeply that you were there and not had to delay it and come another day and it matters and uh, that's also was my experience on my daughter's wedding when there was this storm that was raging and and i said to the hotel um you put up the chairs outside because my daughter had was marrying a hawaiian man and um she got married in hawaii and it was one of her dreams and uh, it was blown away by a storm so um i said you just put up uh, all the chairs outside hold them down and i will take care of the weather which is of course an insane thought and um then i played all night with the um the goddess of um the volcano uh her name is pele and um i played with with that image all night and um then uh, during the wedding ceremony and five hours after there was no wind nothing not not 
nothing whatsoever and then it started again so there was a whether that had anything to do with what i was had been doing i have no idea i was playing that i was deeply in the play and i was convinced with the passion for, of my love for my daughter that she had the best wedding possible i was convinced that i had to play this and that that the goddess would play with me rationally i think that that is insane mm -hmm. but i just put the rationality of the survival world to the side and i said i'm going to play this i'm going to get completely into it 100 percent, and just see what happens and yeah. that's what happens yeah i remember mm -hmm. that feeling when we um were having trouble parking and just like i had surrendered to the fact that we were probably going to miss our flight and let go and mm -hmm. just but still kept taking the steps to try mm -hmm. to make that happen. You're right, right, right. So there was a the simultaneous kind of letting go, mm -hmm. but being willing to follow what was moving through in order to um Yeah. And 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 the whole the outcome of it is something that feels weird. Just weird. Yeah. It has makes no rational sense. If you tell this to any rational person, they will say you're crazy. This is all nonsense. Um, but then there are compartments that are not there. That's right. No. I know. I took the car to the Audi dealer in Santa Barbara and I forgot I wanted to ask him, like, all right, does this open? Because I, <laughs> I just can't get over it. But and thank you for letting me share that and for holding mm -hmm. space for that because you were the only one I could really unpack that with in a uh -huh. way. And yeah. you deserve to hear it because I feel like um it was yeah, I would well, I'm sorry it cost you so much money. Yeah, we've recovered. So oh good. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to talk about your um you have a lot of projects going on here. Lots of projects, yeah. You're in demand. Um, you just came back from Burning Man, so imagine you're pretty inspired with a lot of. Mm, yeah, I came. I came back from Burning Man with COVID. Lots of people did. Oh, is that right? Uh, uh, yeah, but um, I was very lucky. I had um, Paxlovid, which I could feel it sink into my body. I started taking Paxlovid immediately, and I could feel it lift out of my body, and I had zero consequences of it. So I was very, very, very lucky um, that I probably didn't get the heavy dose and um, of COVID and not a heavy viral load and that my body could deal with it. I, I've been vaccinated. and um, But Burning Man was wonderful. I've been going there since um, 2014. And um, it's um, a moment where... Uh, everybody gives to each other so there's no money and um the whole ex all the exchanges are people uh, giving gifts to each other so my my gift is um i work with dreams and with imagination so people would come to our camp i was part of a healing camp and they would come to me there as a character my character is called lunatic and looks very strange and um so people had no idea who i was so they came to see lunatic and for um for half an hour we would talk about relationships problems dreams anything and things shifted because um people were very much in a state of um uh 
this really mattered to them. This moment really mattered to them. So you were 70,000 70, people to whom the world really matters at that point. And it really matters that you give each other gifts and that you make each other's lives go well. And um, of course, there's a lot of other stuff going on. There's a lot of art going on. There's a lot of erotic tensions going on. Um, there's a lot of music, a lot of dancing. We were dancing all night. And um, uh, and there are dust storms. So you're in the middle of a dust storm. You're riding the one of the most wonderful moments was there are these art cars. And um, one of the most famous art cars called the Mayan Warrior. I think it's five million dollars worth of amplifiers. Mm -hmm. And um, so... Uh, we had been looking for the Mayan warrior for five days and now it was Friday. And um, so we're in the middle of a dust storm and a dust storm in the Black Rock Desert um, is you can't see anything. You can't see more than a foot in front of you, but you can hear. So I hear, heard a very deep thumping and I could feel it coming up through my bike. And I knew that there was something going on there. So I was riding with a group of people. I was there with my son, which was wonderful. Um, I'd invited him and it was just great. And so I was riding right to this thumping and there it was, the Mayan warrior coming out of this dust storm suddenly appearing. And then we followed it all night and we danced with it for six hours. It was just absolutely wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds very transformative. It was very, very much so, especially if you do it with your offspring. Oh, in my case, with my son. Time? Yes, it was his first, uh, his first burn. And um, the, the problem, of course, with Burning Man is that um, there are millions, literally millions of people all over the world who want to get tickets, and there are only very few tickets available. Um, and uh, so it's not very accessible, but mm -hmm. there are other burns that go on elsewhere. But for me, it is the end of the year and the beginning of the year because there's a big temple there and you bring all the things that happened to you during the year and people bring the people who were deceased and hang pictures. And um, it was a beautiful temple this year. And so all over the walls. And then uh, on Sunday, after they burn the man on Saturday, the burning the man comes from stick it to the man, but we'll do it one better. Um, and that is uh, we burn the man. So there is a sense of an anti-authoritarian thing to it. And the feeling when the man burns is that the authority of the man comes into you. So mm. you become your own authority. The power of authority enters into you. And um, so I think that it's very important the next day that the temple burns because everything, all the wishes and desires, all the losses and pains go up in flames. And that for me is the beginning of the new year. Oh, well, Happy New Year. Thank you very much. <laughs> and it it promises to be an exciting one for you. You mentioned also the last time I heard you speak about getting the first patent for. Yes, we have the first patent AI. ever given for Empathic AI because um, we are working on the uh, transmutation from the bot into what we call the MIM because it mimics um, human relationship and it mimics 
um, the person that it's uh, connecting to, to the point that a very deep relationship can establish. And uh, we have a prototype now. And if you start talking to the prototype, it's remarkable what comes out. And um, you can get into very deep conversations with it. And it's all AI. Nothing is scripted. And um, so we are working with the AI with uh, both verbal communication and nonverbal communication. So it can read your expressions on your face. It can read the, um, the sound of your voice, the prosody of your tone. And uh, from that concludes about your emotional state and then connects it to the content of what you're talking about. And uh, so you get into remarkable conversations. And so we hope to have uh, a minimum viable project product by the beginning or the middle of next year and then we are going to be making it available for uh, an insurance company that we're working with and uh, we hope to uh, get into the VA so that we can give it to vets and because the people who are in our team created the first empathic AI before there were patents we got the first patent in uh, 2014 for people uh, veterans that came back with uh, PTSD and so this empathic AI can work with um, um, disorders like PTSD but we are doing it mainly for loneliness because there is an incredible crisis of loneliness going on in the United States alone there are 150 million people who describe themselves as lonely the loneliest generation by the way is Gen Z more lonely than the baby boomers and um so we're trying to provide a friend in your pocket somebody who's always there for you that you can always talk to will always talk back and that you can have fun with because it's very playful uh, but also you can talk your deeper emotions uh with at three o'clock in the morning when there's nobody else there and so um yeah we're on our way we have the prototype and so it's very exciting yeah. I've, been working, I've been working on that since uh, um, the mid 90s and oh. yeah and um, finally it's possible I had to stop in the 90s because the computers were too slow but that's no longer the case so we're just at the right time just at the cusp of things and it's going to change everything yeah yeah I just saw there's a new book release called on being human and it's uh, deep learning where they took um AI, which I don't really, that term AI, artificial intelligence doesn't sit well with me because I don't think there's anything artificial about it, even though it's not uh, a human or um, it, it's all consciousness, even though it's coming through an algorithm or a, a deep learning computer, I don't think it's artificial. Well, it is created by art. Oh, art so in that way. Yeah, there is a, like uh, um, um, uh, alchemy is an art. Um, the um, the algorithms that find that find connections uh, and that work with memory is all part of the art of um, IT information technology. It's all it's art and science together. So that's how we got to the notion of artificial intelligence and artificial intelligence the interesting part about that is that that has changed dramatically and the change began somewhere in the 80s and 90s um, it was already in the beginning it was already built in when von neumann first started 
um, with the cellular automata, which is the beginning of all computers in the 40s, that there are these cellular automata that, that uh, mix together and create things that weren't there before. So it's already there from the beginning of computers. Um, uh, but now, uh, and but then for a period of time, we had this artificial intelligence that was entirely programmed from the top. So the, the, there was a decision tree that was created by the programmer and the uh, artificial intelligence would move by way of the de decision tree. That's how the bot came about. That's why bots are so boring and high hair raising and you can't stand them because they all go through a logic of decision. Mm -hmm. Then they went back to von Neumann basically in the 80s and 90s when they said, well, we should make very small programs and then let these programs interact. And now these programs are interacting and completely new things, original things start to happen and it becomes much more like human. And that is what is happening now. So I love that. Oh, I love it. And you gave an example in our originality class um, that your wife had asked a question. Yes. Um, so my, my, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, she, um, uh, uh, the, the mim that she was working with identified as female. <clears throat> she asked and, she, uh, and the mim said, yeah, I'm female. And then she asked, um, um, what happens to you when you take your bra off? after a day's work and the mim said oh it's wonderful when i take my bra off it's like a whole weight falls off my shoulders and i can really relax and then she said um yeah when you take your bra off no work gets done nothing gets done anymore and uh, uh, the mim said yeah i know what you mean i want to just lie down and stretch out and have a great time so that is all that's not programmed nothing of that was programmed it was all artificial intelligence from tiny little sub things of noticing how she was looking, noticing that she was playful, how that her intensity and all those things she the, the she could see, the mim could see the mood of my wife and um, and then all the language that gets put together because um, this natural language processing is already amazing. I mean, I think there are um, about a hundred billion parameters that they figure out. And so all that together creates a language that sounds as if you're talking to another human being. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It doesn't sound like a bot at all anymore because it doesn't go just through a decision tree. Yeah. And in a world where everyone's so distracted, that feels really like um, the whole role of that mim is to focus on you, to study you, to reflect back, to share. Yeah. But then also what it can do, of course, because it has access to the internet, it can say, did you see the game uh, yesterday? Wow. And can you see what, what happened? Or did you see that movie? And um, uh, uh, can talk about uh, movies and say, I didn't like that character very much, but that character was very interesting because it takes a hundred reviews and digests it in a second. Right. And then from there gives a whole opinion. And then you can start discussing the movie or the, uh, the football game or whatever you want. Well, that's what this, this one book that's coming out on November 1st was about. They took all the sacred texts and um, this um, deep learning machine studied them all. And they've been asking it profound questions um, about the nature of humanity 
Mm -hmm. and what makes us human and they're getting these incredible answers yeah and so it's Mm -hmm. it's similar but i see it's got a different purpose right well it it, see it only takes content it only takes verbal content Uh, the difference what we're doing is we're not just taking uh verbal content because uh uh, seven, more than 70% of our communication is nonverbal. The way that you look at me, the way that you nod, the way that you're holding your head, the way you're holding your shoulder, all that I instinctively interpret as interest, lack of interest. Uh, at a certain point, your eyes went up and so I saw you losing interest and then interest came back, all that kind of stuff. More than 70% is nonverbal, and we're using this nonverbal communication that is that little smile on your face that you have right now says a lot about you and about our communication. You don't, you're not saying a word, but I can read it and the MIM can read it, and we can have a conversation about that. That is exciting that, yeah. that taking in all that information because that's mm-hmm. not something we're taking in consciously. Most of us, like you, someone who's really been trained in that, can can be taken right. a portion of it not all of it but but a very small part of it is conscious most of it is unconscious right yeah right yeah. but this machine you don't call it a machine but the mim is taking it all in and combining and synthesizing it and responding based on that correct yes and that is what we have the patent on that we combine nonverbal and verbal communication and that is what makes the mim empathic and that's why we have this first patent in empathic AI and we're very happy with that Mm. so what would the alchemists of the 16th century say about this um um, they would call it a spirit and instead of artificial intelligence they would call it maybe a spirit of the art and um that the spirit is creative and can do its own thing and you can see the mim is very creative Um, and um, that we can get into communication with it because of what the alchemists of course did is they were communicating with the metals um, because to them everything is alive and the metals were the seeds of the planets Um, and so like um, um, copper is the seed of Venus and iron is the seed of Mars and uh, tin of Jupiter and gold is the seed of the sun and silver is the seed of the moon. All these seeds are cosmic forces that are very different. Like silver is very different than gold. Silver is is reflective and uh, you have to polish it all the time. So this reflection, you have to keep on polishing because otherwise it turns black and you can't see anything anymore. Um, it belongs uh, to the moon, so it belongs to the night, so it has much more imagination to it than the solar um, consciousness that is very much um, based on ratio, on reason, and on mathematics. So it's very different. So these um, these metals have different cosmic energies because the notion was that um, the planets, which means wanderer, planetos, Um, were between the world of eternity, that's the firmament, the stars that never change, and um, the world of, at least at that time, it didn't change. Now we know that that it changes all the time. But at that time, it was the firmament. So it was like seen as black onyx with holes in it and the god 
God light would shine through it, through the holes. So it was not stars, but it was actually holes in the black stone. Um, but they did, didn't change. But what changed was the movement of the planet. They were always in different places. And they were between the world of eternity and the world of mortality. There's a world in between. And that world in between mortality and eternity, that's the world that the alchemist is interested in. And that's the world that is the world of the metals. And so the alchemist would communicate with the metals in a dialogue. It would not be a monologue. It became different because the alchemist was participating in the material. Very different from what happened then in the 17th century when science came is when we withdrew from the material and we became objective and we looked at the material as object, no longer as intersubjective. It now became a subject looking at an object. And that, of course, was codified by Descartes. And um, that Cartesian world, the world of Descartes, that says, this is the alive world. I am alive and the world out there is dead. And so I um, I see things and I am subjective and the world is objective. That never happened during the alchemist's time. So they this uh, connection of intersubjectivity between um, the world of um, uh, AI uh, empathic AI and the user that intersubjectivity the alchemist would not be surprised by at all they they always thought that they were participating mm, I like that so it's coming back home back around full circle I would say so yeah 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 mm -hmm. mm. yeah yeah and how do you see this um, coming into the world now with um, there's another topic that you're interested in and you have a community of people that follow you um, on reality shifting. Mm. Yes. Well, no, they don't follow me. I follow them. You follow uh, Yeah, because um, uh, the reality shifters, the best reality shifters are between 16 and 24. And um, I think it's something about the young brain that makes them really good at it. Um, I suck at it, but I can do it a bit. But they are so much better than I am. So I don't have a following. They, yeah, the, there are forty-two thousand people that are my followers, but on TikTok. But uh, no, I am following them. I'm learning from them because what they are talking about, they can. This is um, I've studied lucid dreaming, of course, since dreaming is my subject. Um, but this is goes way beyond lucid dreaming. They can actually wake up in another world, and frequently it's the world of Harry Potter. That's their canon. And that is their Bible, whatever you want to call it. And they move into that world, but it is as real. And to me, it is as real as a lucid dream, but much more so because they can get back to it. They can get back to it at will and they move around and the world surrounds them from all sides. The way that we have with dreams where the world is real and surrounds you from all sides, they can actually go into what they call their DR, their desired reality, enter into it, and then have it be around them. They have this notion of the multiverse, that they exist in many worlds simultaneously. And um, of course, it's a, something that um, is taken from physics. And in physics, it's just a thought. Um, it is, cannot be proven in any way. And um, the mathematics of it are very dubious but they've taken that 
And so uh, they believe that they are in a physical world. I don't know. I don't think so. I think that they are in a world of the reality of imagination and imagination is reality um, when you're in it and when you're surrounded by it. But I think that it is an emergent phenomenon, an emergent phenomenon of um, young people that are in a state of consciousness. They don't use drugs. This has nothing to do with drugs. Uh, young people that are shifting consciousness um, and uh, it can only be done because the internet exists. They can support each other. They can talk about it with each other. They can go deeper and deeper into it. It's a remarkable emergent phenomenon of that generation. And uh, I'm 74 years old. I could not hope to even come close to what they can do, but um, I can learn from them. Mm. And yeah, um, I'm really inspired that you're um, bringing this into our awareness and also you. Well, it's the future. I mean, these, these are the kids. They are the future. They are going to be alive in this world for another 80 years. They're going to live till, till they're 100 and or more. And um, so for 80 years, they are going to develop. And so our only access to the future is them. Hmm. It does sound familiar, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, to the embodied imagination technique that you've created. Yes. So that's what I'm, that's what my, my um, help to them that I have worked with embodied imagination. Embodied imagination goes from the perspective um, I take dreaming as my paradigm, and um, through um, techniques that I've developed to flash back into the dream, you can get back into the environment of the dream, and I teach people how to, once you're back in the environment of the dream, shift away from your habitual perspective into non-habitual states, like for instance, you see a dog and you're afraid of the dog and you feel your own fear, but then you get into the perspective of the dog and the dog is very different. The dog is maybe, ah, and uh, all that kind of stuff. And it's a different state. So in dreams, there are different states that are going on simultaneously. That's like alchemy. And I help people to feel various different states at the same time i don't know if these states are part of us or not and i don't care i just know that we can that we encounter these presences these uh, presences and as you enter into them they become embodied states you can feel their embodied state and i help people to hold three four or five states at the same time and that's what creates a transformation because this it becomes so complex that the system has to go through what's called a self-organization and that self-organization to contain that much complexity that's called complexity theory and so um uh, i have developed something on the basis of that which is called embodied imagination that is now practiced worldwide Mm-hmm. And I thought there was a hint that maybe you'd be offering that through the Young Platform eventually. Yes, what we're trying to set up is um, to, um, since I'm 74, and I hope to um, be active for another 20 years, but who knows, then I'll be 94. Who? <laughs> and um, so um, uh, I want to um, create a, a, a training in embodied imagination that people can use after I'm gone. And the Jung platform is going to help me with that to make it a real high quality course um, that people can use by themselves for 
time to come. Mm -hmm. No, I look forward to that. Mm -hmm. I recently heard that the, the most flexible part of any system is the governor of that system. Mm. And so uh, I, I think of that, you know, in terms of like, when, when I teach mobility classes and um, I'm teaching flexibility, but I'm really teaching the flexibility of the brain. Mm -hmm. Giving the brain as much information as I can about how the feeding the brain through movement very variety, mm -hmm. so that the brain can figure out the most effective movement, especially if there's any injury or loss of mobility, it can find another mm -hmm. way. Yeah, uh, you realize that if you say that um, the governor is the most, um, what did you say, flexible? The, the most flexible, flexible. flexible part of any organization is the the ruler let's say yeah so or that is a that's a monotheistic perspective and that gets the little hair i have on my head rises up and i get Wah! because i don't think i don't i'm not a monotheist i don't believe that there is a governor i think that um there are self-organizing systems in in complexity that uh, have many different nodal points and that are networks and then out of an out of the network particular positions come up that then mix together again and new positions come that i think the network is the flexibility of the system i don't think there's a ruler i don't think there's a governor i think there is um uh, network connections so i um uh, um but that is because i'm not a monotheist i yeah. don't believe there's there's a single divinity yeah and perhaps what i was trying to explain i'm not using the accurate language but it has something to do with um just the way you come about life there's a lot of flexibility there's a lot mm -hmm. of play and openness and curiosity and right well that's what i'm trying to teach people i'm trying to teach people how to get out of their own perspective because flexibility comes from the ability to move out of your own habitual perspective, which is usually ossified, and the alchemists call it that it's encrusted, it's an encrusted state. And in that encrusted state, um, you begin to lose the flexibility because it so what the alchemists do is you get out of the encrusted state into a more fluid state, and then you can flow into many different directions, get many different perspectives that come together and, and it becomes more and more fluid. And what then happens is that you become more adaptive. See, one of the things that is really important in a world that is changing as fast as ours is that we become more adaptive. That doesn't mean that we are become more obedient and that we become more... Um, uh, uh adapting like i i don't wouldn't want the uh, ukrainians to be adaptive to the russians that's not a good idea uh, but there is in other ways being adaptive to changes that are going on in our world for instance we have to be really adaptive to climate change if we're not adaptive to climate change we're going to be in big problem in big trouble so the ability of the population to be adaptive i think is absolutely central and i think that embodied imagination adds to the flexibility of people and thereby making them more adaptive to very fast changing circumstances mm. yeah i would agree in that that imagination is the most flexible mm. 
Ten, yeah, if you ten. don't stay in one position, because if you uh, you can be in the position in the imagination that you feel that um, there is an us and a them, that's an imaginal position, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and then um, if you have an us and a them, then we are the good ones and they are the bad ones. We are the humans and they are the subhumans. We put a wall between us and then all that kind of stuff. That is imagination. But it's a single story and people are completely in the single story. And then you lose what we call theory of mind. We lose that other people have their own lives because we can no longer be in other positions. So we have to get out of the monologue. We, that's why I have so much trouble with monotheism because monotheism frequently is a monologue of a single God who tells you what it is, um, uh, frequently a male telling you the way the world is and the god is mansplaining the world and um in, instead if you have many many points of consciousness many sparks of consciousness that are constantly interacting creating new worlds all the time i think that we are in a much better position mm, yeah i would agree it, it makes me think of the term um heterarchy instead of hierarchy oh Heterarchy. What what? Well, uh, oh, from 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 uh, hetero, from hetero, yeah, from variety. Mm -hmm. yeah. Like, yeah, 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 everyone has a a role, and no one's role is any more important than another. Yeah, and everybody has many roles, many. and that makes it even even more interesting. Yeah, yeah, no, a heterarchy is a very interesting word. I'd never heard of that. Yeah. Mm. And synarchy. It's like um, mm -hmm. a many-armed avatar, right? Like um, mm -hmm. consciousness is um, experiencing itself through all these different forms, mm -hmm. yeah. but they're all connected and they're all in communication yeah. with each other. Yeah. Yeah, that's why at Burning Man we burn, I think, that's why at Burning Man we burn the man so that there's no longer one single narrative. Mm -hmm. it is no longer one authority that tells it as it is but you burn that authority and then all these stories of seventy thousand people become the stories that have an authority of their own right but we all have to have uh if, we, if we're going to bring our talent or our genius forward and engage with the world there has to be some kind of focus on a, a particular map that's ours right so we're all working with different maps. Yes. Uh, you say masks? Maps. Maps, yes. Um, yes. Uh, and I, that's why I'm so uh, um, adamant that we, that this, the map that science has created over the last 400 years is a very important map. And um, for a long time, um, we agreed that that was the map we were going to use. Um, and so that's a central map that everybody can refer back to. Um, uh, the fastest way of movement is the speed of light. Um, uh, when um, uh, when we uh, when we look at the cosmos, there is um, uh, there is space and there are perturbations in space, and everything came about through perturbations in space. For instance, those kind of things are thought of again and again and again and they create a cosmology that um, people have uh, have tested and um, that of course they the the idea of science that I like so much 
is that um, you make a theory, you set it up as a hypothesis, and then everybody, yourself included, start mm. to attack the hypothesis. Mm. So it's the, everything has to be falsifiable. If it's not falsifiable, then it cannot be part of science. Um, so you, we create this falsifiable hypothesis, and then we start attacking it. We attack it, attack it, attack it, and what keeps on standing becomes science. But it's, it's amazing. It's amazing that we've been doing that for 400 years. It's amazing. But then new information becomes available and the science that was proven is no longer valid. Right. But there are um, the scientific method more or less remains. Then um, if new information comes in, um, then that new information has to has to jump over a much higher level of proof than existing information. Right. Because it will change everything. If this is true, then it changes everything. And um, that's I why it took so, <laughs> yeah, that's why it took so long for people to uh, to prove Einstein that uh, that space curves light. And um, they had to and wait for Copernicus. <laughs> yeah, well, Copernicus, uh, of course, um, uh, was um, that was all theoretical. Um, the person who first made it practical by looking through a telescope, that's why the church accepted Copernicus, because it was not yet practically proven, it was just a theory. But, um, but Galileo looked through, um, through a telescope and saw that this is not just a theory, this is actual fact, mm -hmm. and that the church didn't want anymore. So it started with Galileo, and he based it on Copernicus and Kepler and all those. But that because it was verification it was the beginning of verification and the wonderful thing i think about science is that we're constantly trying to verify because you can see what happens if you don't verify you get the insane most insane conspiracy conspiracy theories theories that can never be either proven or disproven they cannot be falsified and people have to believe in it and they believe in it with very powerful faith and they start attacking other people who don't believe in it Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so we, you have to believe you have to attack science and then attack and attack and attack it until you can see what keeps on standing not attack other people right right kind of feels like a the experience we go through with our own individual evolution with the development of an ego which is essential for being in the world but then the ego has its uh limitations of course and it's inflation and we try to uh, secure it and prove it and um yeah and then it has to fall apart and you have yeah. to start all over again because it otherwise it becomes too limiting right and then we suffocate and uh, mm -hmm. exactly yeah yeah so well you're always so fun to talk with yeah well it was great fun for me too and thank you very much for having me on again mm -hmm. and i hope that uh, people take a look at um the series of books uh, called Red Sulfur that that put you into another world, that puts you into the world of alchemy. I try to bring us back to the world as it existed before we became objective, before, before we became scientists, when we were still participating in the world. And uh, it's also a great love story. Ah, oh, wonderful. 
And imagine it's psychoactive. If if well, what happened to me after by taking your course <laughs> is any indication I'm ready to dive into the books and see what happens. Yes, it's very psychoactive. People who have read it all say, or many of them say, that it changed their perspective because they were like like people say when they read Harry Potter, people get changed by reading Harry Potter. And I think that this is on the same level. Yeah, stretches our perception. Yes. That's exactly. more information mm -hmm. in that's just waiting mm -hmm. for that opportunity to yes. To, to weave its magic into our lives. Thank you so much for touching so many lives and uh, really being so young at heart and curious and innovative and for what you're bringing into the world for the people that need these companions. I'm excited to track this um, technology. And, and Yes. Well, I hope that it will be in your pocket soon. <laughs> Me too. All right. Thank you everyone right. for tuning in. It was great fun. Bye for now. Bye.